invite you at this time to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 9. Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 9. In this evening's text, Paul is giving to Philippians, and by extension to us, his final exhortation before he will move to wrap up this letter in the, the next passage. Uh, so Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 9. Please pay careful attention, for this is God's word. The Apostle Paul says this, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Well, thus ends the reading of God's holy word, made accomplish all for which he has purpose. Well, what is a fundamental human desire that all people seem to long for, to strive after? One possible answer to this question is peace. Peace seems to be something that all people intuitively long for, strive after. For example, we all, all humans, seem to have this desire to be at peace. Romans 1 tells us that all humans recognize, in some sense, their moral guilt before God as creator. Even though they suppress this truth, they, they have had that knowledge. Because all people, at some level, seek to atone for their guilt with some higher power. I always find it interesting to hear some of the rhetoric of, of non-Christian politicians as they speak about various green agendas. And some such rhetoric can come across as if they're seeking to atone for guilt atone for their guilt with this pagan god of creation. You see that all people long for peace with, with this higher power. But we also long for peace relationally. We long for peace in our countries, peace in our communities, peace in our families, peace in our churches. We long for peace internally. We can just consider for a moment all the 
different things that people turn to to try to find peace. See, excesses all over the place, whether it be alcohol, drugs, sex, work, exercise, people are longing to find this internal peace. Therefore, we are indeed a people, a people who, who long for peace, but look for it in all the wrong places. In our passage this evening, Paul is giving his final exhortation to this Philippian congregation. And what do you think his final appeal is to this church? It's an appeal to pursue peace. To live according to the way of peace. Therefore, as we consider this topic of peace, I'd like to do so in, in three main segments or points. First, we'll consider peace with God. Then we'll consider peace with one another. And lastly, we'll consider peace within ourselves. Peace with God, peace with one another, and peace within ourselves. Before we consider, can, can consider what Paul has to say about peace with one another and peace within ourselves, we first need to begin with considering our relationship to God, whether or not we have peace with Him. Now as we consider this, this word peace, there are two main meanings of, of peace when we, when we use it. The first is a subjective meaning. This is referring to that internal emotion of peace. But there's also an objective reference to peace. This objective reference has to do uh, when one is in an amiable relationship with another party. When you speak of two countries being, being at peace, where you have in mind this objective meaning of this word. Therefore, when we're considering our relationship with God, we have the objective meaning of peace in mind. In order to consider peace with God, I think we need to begin at the beginning, as it were. Recall for a moment Genesis 1 and 2. In Genesis 1 and 2, we read that our first parents were indeed in a, in a peaceful relationship with God, their creator. They enjoyed communion with God. Although they weren't in heaven, they weren't everlasting life. There still was a possibility of sin. Yet they still exist, uh, experienced true peace, true communion. But what happens in Genesis chapter 3? We read that our first parents sinned. We can consider their sin in a number of different ways, but one way in which we can consider our parents' first sin is in the sense of them making a pact with the devil, you could even consider it, or a covenant with the devil. They, they rejected communion and peace with God, and they joined forces with the enemy, with the serpent. And thus man became the recipient of God's curse. But God doesn't just curse mankind. He also gives this promise in Genesis 3, this promise of the seed of the woman who would one day crush the head of the serpent, the enemy. In this promise, it's a sentence long, we have God promising to send this mediator who would take his people from the side of the enemy and bring him into his family. And this is what we read in Romans 5, verse 1. As Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Notice that through our Lord Jesus Christ, we have justification. Our sins have been atoned for. We have been granted this perfect righteousness which is needed to stand before a holy God. And therefore, we are at peace with God. Now you may be thinking, well, yeah, that's, that's good, that's right, that's true. But where is that in this passage? Well, when we read Scripture, I think a good reading strategy for us to employ, especially as Reformed Christians, is to ask ourselves whether the passage we are considering is a guilt passage, a grace passage, or a gratitude passage. You may recognize these three, uh, these three headings as the headings of our, of our catechism. And these are really, this is really the structure of most of Paul's letters. So you can ask yourself, is the passage a guilt passage? Is it trying to convince us of our guilt and misery and crush us before God's law? Or is it a grace passage? Is it explaining for us the good news of what Christ has done and calling us to faith? Or is it a gratitude passage, seeking to instruct us as Christians in the way we should go? Well, as we consider this passage, flipping 4, 2 through 9, I think this is clearly a gratitude passage. Paul is instructing us on what our lives should look like as Christians. But throughout this passage, we see that Paul is clearly assuming, implying the gospel message. The gospel message which has brought us peace with God. And this makes sense, doesn't it? The only way the law can serve as a norm of gratitude, a norm of guidance in our Christian life, is if it comes after the gospel. The law is only good news for us after we receive the gospel. So, for instance, if you look with me in your Bibles at verse 3, we see uh, Paul says that the Philippian church, or at least many in the, in the Philippian church, are those whose names are in the book of life. And what does it mean to have your name written in the book of life? It means that you have been justified. You are at peace with God, a citizen of heaven. Verse 5, Paul says, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. How can Paul have confidence that the Lord is in the midst of this Philippian congregation, not in judgment, but in grace and mercy? It's because of the, the work of our only mediator. Or in verse 7, Paul says, God's people guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. In Christ is code for union with Christ. That's the gospel. And it's only through the gospel, being united to that mediator, that we can have God's peace guarding us. And lastly, verse 9, uh, Paul speaks about the God of peace being with us. How can he be confident that the Philippians will have the God of peace with them and not the God of wrath and judgment? Again, it's because of the mediation of Christ. Therefore, you can see that we can't even begin to consider peace with one another, peace within ourselves, if we don't have the foundation, if we don't first recognize whether we are at peace with God, otherwise the rest of this passage is irrele irrelevant. So do you have peace with God? Or are you still in, in a, a covenant, a pact with the devil? That's really the two options Scripture presents. Either you're in line with the seed of the woman or the seed of the serpent, in Adam or in Christ. So do you have peace with God? 
Paul, Scripture would call us to accept, even if even with true faith, the terms of peace which is offered to us in the gospel. Well, this peace with God, which we receive by faith, this peace with God is meant to produce fruit in two areas. And the first area of fruit that this relationship with God, this peace uh, that we have with God is peaceful, is meant to produce is that we are to have peace with one another. Peace with one another. So if you look in your Bible in verses 2 and 3, we read that there was a conflict in this Philippian congregation. This conflict existed between Yodi and Syntyche. These are two women who are members of this church. We don't know a lot about these individuals. They may have been founding members of this congregation. And the reason why this is a possibility is because in Acts 16, which speaks and tells us of the origins of the Philippian, uh, the Philippian congregation, we read that women were some of the founding members, some of the first members of this church. Whatever their place is in this church, we know that this conflict was, was big enough. It was dividing the church. It was enough of a conflict that Paul had to explicitly address it in this letter. And notice Paul's appeal to, to these women who are in conflict. Paul's urging them to agree in the Lord. To agree in the Lord. Now this phrase, literally translated, is, or should, could be rendered as, think the same thing in the Lord. Think the same thing in the Lord. And this word that Paul uses in our ESVs for agree, or according to my literal translation, think, this word think is used in chapter 2 as well. You can turn there if you'd like, or you can just uh, listen along. But in chapter 2, verse 2, Paul addresses the theme of unity and humility. And in verse 2 of chapter 2, Paul says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind. That's how our ESV translates it. But again, literally, Paul's saying, think the same thing. Complete my joy by thinking the same thing. And you're left wondering, well, what should we be thinking, Paul? And he tells us in chapter 2, verse 5, which uses again this same word. Where he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Or literally, think this in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Thus, in chapter 2, Paul is saying that the Philippians should think the same thing, i.e., they should have the mindset of Christ. This mindset of sacrifice and humility and love. And now, when we come back to chapter 4, verse 2, it seems as if Paul is taking the principles he's already established with this congregation in chapter 2 of unity and humility, and he's applying them to this specific real-life conflict. Now, it's important to remember, remember our context. Right? Last week, Paul just established that our fundamental identity is that we are citizens of heaven. Not we will be citizens of heaven, but we are citizens of heaven now, even though we don't reside in heaven. Therefore, as we come to this, this verse in chapter 4, as he's exhorting these, 
these women to think the same thing, we need to remember he's not referring to their earthly citizenship. What Paul has in mind is their identity as members of Christ's church, as citizens of heaven, and that's why he says, think the same thing in the Lord. He's not referring to their earthly citizenship. He's not expecting them to have the same view of Roman law and policy, as if there's one monolithic Christian view of such things. It's not all of Paul's saying. No, he's expecting, he's wanting them to think the same thing according to their place in God's kingdom. According to their heavenly citizenship, which means they are to have this mindset of Christ. To think the way that Christ thought. Well, this mindset is meant to lead to action. And in this passage, Paul has a very specific so what action is this, this mindset of Christ meant to produce? Well, we see this in verse 5. So if you look with me, Paul says, the Philippians should let their reasonableness be known to everyone. Now this word that Paul uses for reasonableness is, is the word for forbearance. Forbearance means, as, uh, as one source has defined it, not insisting on every right of letter or law or custom. It means not giving your fellow brothers and sisters strict justice. It means exercising patience. It means when you've been wrong, not giving your brother and sister what you think they deserve. Forbearance. This is the same ethic which we have been considering in our reading of the law in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, Jesus doesn't tell us, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Make sure you get strict justice from your brothers and sisters. Well, he says, turn the other cheek. He says, love, pray, your, pray for your enemies. Not just those who are your friends, who are easy to get along with. We're called to be a forbearing people. And I think this is such a needed time, such a needed work for our current time. As we continue to deal with COVID-19 and this pandemic, the regulations that come along with it, how that applies to us as a church, we are called in the midst of this to be a forbearing people. As I mentioned in announcements, as you all likely saw in uh, Elder Portheis's email, his history of Linden has uh, given us the policy that, that we are to follow, and I'm sure there's many of us here who think this is way too strict. Others who think this is not strict enough. But in this issue, I think what Paul would want us to do is let our forbearance be known to everyone. To those whom we may disagree with, to our leaders. Let our forbearance be known to everyone. Furthermore, as we seek live the life of forbearance. Let us never forget that this forbearance is rooted in God's forbearance with us. Think for a moment how patient the Lord is with you, with me, with every one of us. He does not give us what we deserve. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. He at the cost of his own self saved us from his just wrath. 
Let's be quick to remember the costliness. The costliness it was for God the Father to redeem us, to save us from our own sins. Remember that. It's especially difficult to exercise forbearance with another brother or sister in the Lord. Thus, the way to pursue peace with one another is through cultivating this mindset of Christ, which produces forbearance in our relationships. Relationships. Well, being at peace with God, yes, it leads to peace with one another, but it also leads to peace within ourselves. Peace within ourselves. That's what I'd like us to, to consider now, peace within ourselves. And the opposite of this internal peace that Paul is speaking of is anxiety. This is what he says in verse 6. Paul says, do not be anxious about anything. In, in nothing, you could say, should you be anxious. And oftentimes our anxiety has to do with, with things that maybe are very unlikely to happen, but yet we are anxious nonetheless. Or we're, we're anxious about tomorrow's worries. They're not things that are present threats right now that we have to act upon. They're things that are sort of far off, right? They're tomorrow's worries in, in Jesus' words. Now, of course, we can't control the feeling of anxiety as it comes upon us. I think what Paul wants us to, to seek to control and, and to focus on is those proceeding thoughts and words and actions. And the temptation for us is to allow our anxiety to call the shots, to allow our anxiety to be in the control panel of our hearts. And with our thoughts, this can look like our thoughts just being consumed about whatever it is that's making us anxious, ruminating over that old uh, constantly. In our speech, it could look like us becoming irritable or angry or shy because of whatever it is that's bringing anxiety. In our actions, it can lead us to neglect the responsibilities that God has called us to do in the day set before us. Again, therefore, instead of thinking, speaking, acting out of anxiety, Paul wants us to live by faith in the face of anxiety. So how does faith respond when anxiety overcomes us? And that's what Paul is, is, is teaching us here. Well, faith responds in moments of anxiety with prayer. That's what Paul says in the rest of verse 6. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Again, notice this contrast. Paul says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, pray. In everything, pray. And there's two aspects of this prayer that Paul calls us to. We see prayer in the form of supplication, meaning request, and prayer in the form of thanksgiving. So Paul calls us to give our request to God. And what happens when we are anxious? Well, we fear losing control. It may be you know, losing control of ourselves, a loved one, a situation. A lot of times anxiety comes when we have this desire uh, to be sovereign, desire to have this complete control, and we realize we can't exercise that sort of sovereignty over our life or the situations around us. Thus, giving our request to God is important, not just because God's a God who hears and answers our prayers, but also the very act 
of giving our supplications and requests to God teaches our hearts that we're not God. We're not God. We are mere creatures. Listen to John Calvin as he makes a very similar point in his uh, commentary on, on this verse. He says, For we were not made of iron. Meaning, we were never meant to be sovereign, creator, the creator. We were not made of iron so as not to be shaken by temptations or distresses or whatever it is that comes our way. But this is our consolation. This is our solace to deposit or to disburden in the bosom of God everything that harasses Anxiety comes when we try to do the duties of the sovereign. What Paul's saying here, don't even attempt it. You can't do it. Just burden into the bosom of God all that which is troubling you. But Paul also says that we are to give thanks. We are to give thanks. The other aspect of prayer. And as I mentioned a few weeks ago, what happens also when we're anxious, we, we tend to get this tunnel vision. Where all we see is that which is making us anxious. And we're blind to every other reality that's going on around us. And oftentimes it's those realities that testify to us of God's fatherly care and provision. Testify to us of the many ways in which God has indeed been good to us and has blessed us. Therefore, Paul is calling us to give thanks because giving thanks is an antidote to this sort of tunnel vision. Because giving thanks reminds us of all the many ways in which God has indeed been good to us. God has indeed blessed us, even in the midst of whatever it is that's producing anxiety. So we are to live by faith, by praying, whether in the form of supplication or thanksgiving, but we also live by faith in the face of anxiety by filling our minds with the Word. We see this in verses 8 through 9. And if you look with me in your Bibles, the Apostle Paul says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, we're going to say practice these things. Notice first in, in verse 8, Paul is calling us to think about virtue, excellent things. Where do we learn about such things? Well, for the Philippians, it would have been, yes, in the Old Testament scriptures, but also, maybe more applicatory to their current situation, the apostolic teaching, example, and testimony to the Apostle Paul. That's where they learn, both Old Testament scriptures and apostolic testimony, what they are to set their minds upon. And for us today, the apostolic teaching is the New Testament. We have the canon scripture. We have every letter, every gospel. And therefore, we are to fill our minds with God's word. In a similar way, the Philippians would have filled their minds with the apostolic testimony and the Old Testament. They heard it read to them in the words there. Well, think of your mind, in this sense, as a car. And the question is, is where are you going to park the car of your mind? Now, I don't know how many hailstorms 
occurs here in Washington. I know growing up in the Midwest, we would always have a few hailstorms a year, and they could cause quite a bit of damage on vehicles, on homes. So boys and girls, imagine you, there's a hailstorm. Ice, you know, bits of ice are falling from the sky, and your parents choose to park their vehicle outside. What's going to happen? These, like, softball-sized pieces of ice come down. Well, it's going to get damaged. But what happens if they choose to park it in the garage? It's going to be safe. It's going to be free of all the hail damage that your neighbors may be experiencing. In a similar way, Paul is calling us to park our minds in the right garage, as it were. You either can park your minds in the garage of anxiety, which really has no ceiling, doesn't protect you, it's just lies, Lies that you need to have absolute control. Lies that, that God's not really seeing what you're going through. He's not in control. He can't help you. Or you can park your mind in the garage of God's truth. Which is what Paul is calling us to. God's truth is that we have a Father. A Father who's not only good, but a Father who's also, also almighty, ever-powerful. And that God so watches over you that not even a hair can fall from your head without his will. There's nothing with more peace potential, as it were, than the promises of God with which to fill our hearts and minds. But lastly, living by faith involves praying and involves filling our minds, but also involves being doers of God's word. That's what he says in verse 9, where... where uh, Paul continues by saying, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Now, oftentimes, as I mentioned, our anxiety is concerned with tomorrow's needs, not things that are current threats that we need to act upon. Thus, focusing on being faithful and present in the moment, in the day that God has called us to, and let tomorrow be anxious about tomorrow's worries. You'll notice then that the promise, the promise of living by faith in the moments of anxiety, is we attain God's peace. You see this verse in verse 7, first in verse 7, where Paul says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now this word for guard was the word that was used in the first century to refer to military soldiers guarding a city or a garrison. This is the imagery that Paul uses to describe God's peace guarding our hearts and minds. And the Philippians would have caught on to this as Philippi, a Roman colony, had Roman soldiers guarding it. We as citizens of heaven are pilgrims. We are pilgrims who face many dangers, sufferings, temptations, fears. And it, is as, it is as if the Lord through his spirit, provides his people with this garrison of peace as they continue their pilgrimage to their homeland. Furthermore, Paul repeats this very similar promise in the end of verse 9 where he says, when we live by faith, uh, by filling our minds with the word and we endures the word, the God of peace, the God of peace will be with us. It's important at this point, I think, to make a, a qualification to, to what Paul's saying here. 
in that we can't expect this to be overly transactional. What I mean by this, we shouldn't view this in, in, in this mechanical way as if I'm feeling anxious, therefore I'm going to go through these steps, I'm going to pray, fill my mind with, with the word, make sure I'm being obedient, and boom, my anxiety should be gone, and this transcendent peace should just overcome me. I don't, I don't think that's what Paul is wanting us, how Paul is wanting us to read, read this passage. I think sometimes we can view our emotions in the Christian life within the framework of, of the prosperity gospel. Now we all, I'm sure, are aware of the prosperity gospel and um, condemn it. Right? This idea that as long as you exercise enough faith, God will give you a very prosperous earthly life. Your bank account will be full, your family will be healthy, everything will go well. If those things aren't happening, well, maybe you're not exercising enough faith. I think we're quick to condemn that, but sometimes we turn to this idea of emotions in the Christian life, and we think that if we just exercise enough faith, then we surely will have this joy, this peace, these transcendent emotional experiences, and if we don't have a certain heightened level of such things, then we must not be having enough faith. Almost as if, after we come to Christ, our emotions are no longer tainted by sin, no longer tainted by the fall. We need to always remember that we are and we continue to be, even as Christians, fallen creatures. Those who still have been affected and tainted by the fall, not only in our soul, but our mind and our body. Remember what Paul said in chapter 3, verse 10, that we know Christ in suffering. That's the expectation we're given. We know Christ in suffering. Not just persecution because of our faith. Physical ailments, psychological ailments, issues of the mind, issues of the body, circumstances. We know Christ in suffering. Therefore, anxiety or other such issues can be part of the suffering some of us are called to bear. Even though our experience of peace will be imperfect, be measured, it's not going to be the peace we experience in heaven. Paul's reminding us that the deepest kind of peace we can experience and have in this life is found when we live by faith. Well, as we who are at peace with God seek to pursue peace, both with one another and peace within ourselves, as I just mentioned, let us never forget that this peace will indeed be imperfect. But let us look forward to that day when our imperfect peace will be perfected at the second coming of Christ. Let us pray. O oh Lord, we thank you for sending your Son and our mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, to bring us to yourself. May we, may we exercise the kind of love, forbearance, and forgiveness that you have displayed towards us. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.